John chapter 1, we're picking it up in verse, <clears throat> verse 14. John 1, 14 to verse 18. Uh, the words should be up on the screen if you would like to follow along with the Bible in hand. You didn't happen to bring one. There's a, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath. John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the only God. And Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son. He is the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature. He is of the same essence. And he is our Savior. So I pray that uh, you would help me uh, to make much of Christ this morning. I pray that you would stir in our hearts a desire to worship Jesus. For he is the Son of God, and as we've read weeks before, that he is the creator of all things. So may we worship him, because he is the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'm sure all of us are familiar with, uh, with Superman. He's not my favorite superhero, but... I like him. I'm sure it's hard not to like a guy, to not like a guy like Superman, right? He's super strong, he's fast, he can fly, he can repel bullets. Not only that, but he's a good guy, right? He, he rescues people from danger and peril. He saves the day. You might even call him a savior. Now, why in the world am I talking about Superman when we should be talking about Jesus? Well, here's why. Superman is, for many Christians, an accurate description of how they think about Jesus. Many Christians, maybe some of you here this morning, think of Jesus as a kind of Superman. And you may not, you may not even be aware of it. And what I mean by that is that you might only tend to think of Jesus solely in terms of what he has done or what he can do for you or what he has saved you from. But, but there's a lot more to Jesus than what he can do and has done for us. If you're ever 
right? Nobody ever wants to be in a situation like this, but if you're ever in a dangerous situation, a life and death situation, right, you want somebody to rescue, you want a savior, you want a hero, right? But then when the situation is over, well, then there's no need for the savior anymore, is there? Or let's think of it in less, in less extremities. If you have any terrible situation in your life, any bad circumstances, right? You always want the help, right? You seek for the Lord, Jesus, help me. Lord, strengthen me. Please help me. Please provide. Please get me through this, right? And we should pursue the Lord in those, in those circumstances. But then when those situations are over and then there's peace again in your life, well, then are you still pursuing the Lord with the same rigor that you did before when you were in the bad situation, But we cannot only think of Jesus in terms of what he has done for us, and he has done a lot for us, right? He has saved us from our sins, and you should pursue the Lord when you need help, when you need strength, when you need his mercy, when you need his grace to continue on. But that is not the only reason why we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we walk through the first 13 verses of this prologue of the book of John, we're now concluding kind of this, the prologue in verses 14 to 18. And the author's intent, and maybe you've noticed, has been to, to focus not so much on what Jesus came to do, but focusing much more on the person of Jesus Christ. So as I, as I work through these last uh, verses in this prologue in the Gospel of John, my hope this morning is that you will join me in glorifying Jesus Christ not just because he is our savior and what he can save us from in the future when bad things come upon our lives, but that we will glorify Jesus Christ just simply because he's Christ. So the first thing we see in the passage is the glory of God in Christ. So in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Apostle John begins his letter by first establishing the, the, the eternality and the divinity of the Word in the first five verses. So now in verse 14, he transitions to, uh, to establishing for us the humanity of this Word, of the, this divine Word become incarnate, who is Jesus Christ. And I think there's wisdom on the part of the author in starting out with the divinity of Jesus Christ. So for many of you who have Maybe growing up in the church, or have been in the church in a long time, maybe you've heard a particular teaching on the Gospel of John, chapter 1, right? To read the passage that where it says that the Word became flesh, that might not, that might be pretty clear to you. You might understand that pretty well, right? Now, for, for newer Christians, well, that might be a little bit confusing because the passage says that the Word, the divine Word, the one who is fully God, became flesh or took on flesh, or depending on the translation that you're reading, it says that the Word became human, Right, and that's accurate. That's true. That's what the scriptures say, that the word of God became human. But it doesn't mean, this is what we need to get clear. It does not mean in any way that the divine word gave up any of his divinity in order to become a living, breathing human being. So remember in the very beginning, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Right, so the word is fully divine and fully God. And so if the divine word gave up any of his divine attributes or qualities, then he would no longer be God. 
In fact, if there is one thing that the omnipotent God cannot do is give up any of his divine essence. Because if he were to give up any of his divinity, then he would become less than God. And so his divinity is so enveloped in who he is as God that he cannot help but be divine and eternal and God. So then the divine word cannot be less than divine by becoming human any more than you can become less human by becoming a dog, right? You can pretend to be a dog and get all four, on all fours and bark like a dog and maybe make a fool of yourself, but it does not mean that you are less than human. But what the divine word can do is add to himself humanity. So listen to what Philippians 2.6 says. It says, who, Jesus, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So here's a quick aside on Bible translations. When studying the scriptures, it's helpful at times to consult different translations because sometimes they help clarify the meaning of a particular passage. And depending on the translation, a passage like this one might read a little confusingly. So some, some translations will kind of hint at or say that the divine word actually gave up some of his divinity in order to become human. And that's absolutely false. Even in the, the ESV or the NASB versions, which is what we normally have up on the screen on Sunday mornings, some of the most, two of the most accurate English translations are not 100% clear on what Philippians 2, 6, 7 is intended to communicate. But with, this is what Philippians 2, 6, and 7 is trying to tell us, and that is that Jesus lowered himself to our standards. That is, he gave up his divine privileges by taking upon himself humanity, the fullness of humanity. Now, you might remember a couple weeks ago, when we, I, I mentioned a little bit of the cultural context and also talking about how the Israelites in that culture looked at or how they understood the relationship between a father and a son, particularly a man who was of high social standing. So a man who was in a higher social class was shown honor, prestige, and reverence, and, that's, and those same privileges was afforded to the son because the son was understood of the same essence of the father. So Jesus, you could say, gave up the privileges that belong to him as the son of God by becoming human. So Jesus, the passage is telling us is that Jesus emptied himself, or in other words, he subtracted from himself by adding to himself human flesh. Now, for those of you who are good at math or mathematicians and engineers, that probably doesn't make any sense. How do you subtract by adding, right? But this is what the word of God says. Jesus emptied himself. He subtracted by, from himself by adding to himself, taking upon himself a human nature. And so that makes him fully God and fully man, both at the same time, without losing one over the other. And one particular translation I found helpful was actually the amplified version, and this will be up on the screen. So again, Philippians 2.6, and this is a, a different translation, but it also has sort of these short commentaries on the passage. So it says, Jesus, who although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, as one with him, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it, but he emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity, 
but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity by assuming the form of a bondservant and made himself and being made in the likeness of men. He became completely human, but was without sin, being fully God and fully man. And Jesus adding to himself humanity is the only way that the divine word could actually dwell amongst us in the most fullest sense without losing any of his divinity. Right, so the passage says that the word dwelt among us. And the idea here in a more technical sense is that the word tabernacled with us. And this idea is actually intentional and part of the author because, as I said before, John, who is the, the writer of the letter, interprets what he's seen and what he has heard through Jesus Christ through his, his, through his uh, understanding of the Old Testament. Because prior to Jesus, prior to the temple, how did God make his dwelling amongst his people? It was in a tabernacle or in a tent. So in Exodus 25, God gives specific instructions to Moses on how to make this dwelling for God. And it says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then in Leviticus 26, 11, it says, God says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. So before God dwelt among his people in a tabernacle, and he makes his dwelling among the people. And that passage in Leviticus is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus made his dwelling amongst humanity, not in a tent, but by adding himself a human body that felt hunger, exhaustion, felt thirst, felt pain, and even he was even subjected himself to the common temptations that we all experience. And yet, because he is fully God, was without sin. And even though the divinity of Jesus Christ is covered or veiled in a human body, the glory of Christ still shines through. So the apostle says in the gospel of John chapter 1, that the apostles say that they, that they, that is he and the other apostles, saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And that glory could belong only to one who was indeed the very son of God. Now that would strike a chord with the Israelites because they themselves understood that they were sons of the living God. In Exodus 4, 22, when God sends Moses to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt, and he tells Pharaoh what to say, well, God says this to Moses to tell to Pharaoh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. But here in the Gospel of John, John tells us that there's another son, a true son, who, unlike the Israelites, was from God's very essence. Israel, the people of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, was, were sons of God by election, and you and I are sons and daughters of God by election and by adoption. But Jesus Christ has always been the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He's of the essence of the Heavenly Father. And so for that reason, to him belonged glory, a glory that was vividly seen by the apostles when Jesus Christ was on earth as a human flesh, as a human being. The apostles saw the glory of Jesus Christ when he ministered to people, when he preached the gospel, when he taught the people, when he healed people, when he, when he exercised uh, the evil spirits out of people. 
And not only the apostles, but all those who beheld Jesus Christ doing these sins saw the glory of Christ. But seeing the glory of Christ in these ways does not always equate to spiritual sight. Right? Because you can see something, but not really behold it. Right? Something that you just simply see, you see it for a moment and you walk away and nothing's changed. Nothing's happened. Right? But when you behold something, when you really look at something, when something has captured your attention, when you cannot help but look at it, when you feel like you can look at it forever and ever and ever, right, you're beholding something. Those who beheld the glory of the Lord could not help but believe in the Lord. And even now, we behold the glory of Christ through the gospel. Those who behold the glory of Christ in his death for sinners and his resurrection for their assurance and their forgiveness, his ascension for their encouragement, cannot but help believe in the gospel and are radically transformed because of it. So if you have yet to behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then my prayer and hope is that the Lord would open your eyes to behold the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The divine word, experiencing the fullness of relationship within the Trinity, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, came to our earth, took on humanity, was fully God and fully man in order to die for sinners so that they can be reconciled with God, so they can be adopted as daughters and sons of God. And the Lord gives them eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel. So my prayer and hope is that you would trust in that gospel message, that you would see the glory of Christ in that gospel message and be radically transformed because of it. In Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. Have you ever realized that the fact that what sets, what sets Christianity apart from other religions is Jesus Christ? Other religions do not, do not worship Jesus Christ like we should, like we do, right? As the eternal son of God, as the divine one, He's not just a human being. He's not just this miracle worker who had supernatural powers, but he was the very son of God. He was fully divine. He was God. And if Jesus is nothing more than just a human being who could perform miracles, then he's no savior. And if he is, if he's not our savior, then we have no hope but we have to affirm his divinity and his humanity because without both, then Jesus isn't our savior. It's because of who he is that we can call him our savior. Now, as we continue further in the passage, I want you to notice some powerful comparisons. So two other individuals are named in this this passage. So first, John the Baptist, right? John, it says in verse 15, John bore witness about him, about Christ, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, last week we talked at length about the ministry of John the Baptist, and that ministry was one of preparation. He was preparing the hearts and minds of the people to receive the coming king. And for that reason, he was significant in salvation history. So significant, in fact, that even Jesus said of John the Baptist that there was no one greater of those born of women than John the Baptist. 
because no one was assigned the task of preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even the Old Testament prophets had that same function as John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist will say that he that is not greater than Jesus Christ. Jesus outranks John, not just because of what he has come to do, that is to save us from our sins, but Jesus outranks John just simply because of who he is. He's the eternal divine son of God. John was only pointing to the divinity of Jesus Christ when he was directing all attention away from himself and pointing to the one who ranked before him. Long before Jesus came into the world and became our Savior, Jesus was God. Jesus is the most important figure of all time to be because he is the Son of God. And further, what makes Jesus greater than John the Baptist is that grace and truth didn't come through the ministry of John the Baptist, but it came through Jesus Christ. So John does not compare to Christ. And another individual that does not compare to Jesus Christ is Moses. So verse 17 in our passage says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right? Through Moses, God communicated to his people his plan of redemption. And he even through the hand of Moses, redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, right? And through Moses, God communicated to his people the Ten Commandments, the Levitical laws, and how to get right with God, and even the plans for the tabernacle or the tent by which God would dwell with his people. Hence why Jesus and the New and other New Testament authors will say that the, and talking about the commandments and the Levitical prescriptions as, they refer to it as the law of Moses. But Christ is better than Moses because he mediates for us a better covenant because of who he is. In Hebrews 8, verse 1, it says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as a covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." Hebrews 9, 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the reason Jesus mediates a better covenant is because of who he is. Right? He's not your typical Levitical priest who had to atone for the sins of, him, of his own very sins and then atone for the sins of the people repeatedly over and over again. But Jesus is a better high priest because though he was fully human, he was also fully God at the same time and only had to make atonement for the sins of his people once and for all. 
And from the fullness of Christ, we've all received grace upon grace. Now, grace did come through the law of Moses, particularly in its being obeyed. Not only that, but the law of Moses also prescribed to the people how they could have, be right with God. But Jesus, in Jesus, there is better grace. Just as the mercies of the Lord are made new for you each and every day, so you are showered with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the Lord himself is full of divinity and eternality, that no matter how much power he exerts in the entire universe, that divinity and omnipotence can never run out, so there is so much grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that if you were to dispense it to all people, not one ounce, that he doesn't have one less ounce. He continues to have this fullness of grace. So just as the mercies of God are made new for you each and every day, so there is an ample amount of grace for you each and every day to cover your sins and my sins from now until the day that we are forever joined with Jesus Christ. So there is no one who compares to Christ. The reformer Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, the sun is not dimmed and darkened on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. It retains its light intact. It loses nothing. It is immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine 10 more worlds. I suppose that 100,000 candles can be ignited from one light, and still this light will not lose any of its brilliance. Thus, Christ, our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must ask all, is an interminable well, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still it would not lose as much a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. Jesus is full of grace. So lastly, in this final part of the prologue, it tells us that there is this divine revelation through a divine agency. It says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So down to the very end of, of verse 18 of chapter 1, the author continues to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, he says, not even Moses, who saw only a glimpse of the back of the Lord when he asked to see his glory. Not even Isaiah in his grand vision of the throne room of God did not see the Lord himself in the fullness of his splendor, of his, of his presence. No one has ever seen God. Only the one who has always been by the side of God has ever seen him. And he makes him known. And actually what this technically intends to communicate is that Jesus has always been at the bosom of the Father. For the Son to be at the side of the Father, is, it, it, it means much more than, than his just being beside him. To be at his bosom communicates a deep love and intimacy and relationship with the Father. Think of the most intimate and close and loving relationship that you have right now or have ever had, whether that's with a spouse or a sibling or a parent or a child. The relationship between the Father and the Son surpasses anything that you and I have ever, ever experienced. The Father's love for the Son and the Son's close relationship to the Father makes the Son worthy of all glory, and he makes him worthy of all worship, so that if the Son, and get this, if the Son did nothing at all, 
to save us from our sins, he would still be worthy of all glory and praise and honor and worship. But he did come to save us. But even the gospel of salvation is not meant to make much of us, but it's meant to make much of Jesus Christ. How would you answer the question, why did the incarnate, why did the Son of God come down to our earth? If the answer is to save us from our sins, that's correct. And that's a wonderful answer. It's the right answer. But it's not the full answer. It's not, I would argue, it's not good enough. And I want to show you. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans 1, 4, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Why did the Son of God come and die for sinners? Right, so that we can be saved? Yes. So that we can be reconciled to God? Yes. So that we can be forgiven of our sins? Yes. So that we can be adopted as, as daughters and sons of the living God? Yes. So that we can have eternal life with Jesus Christ? Yes. Those are all correct answers. Those are all wonderful answers, and that's all truth. But there is one other fundamental answer to that question. And that answer is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And I would love to show you. Look, if you, and so like, how do you look? How do you see that from Romans chapter one? Where is that? So in Romans one, if you, if you, I don't know if it's up, it's still up on the screen, or if you like, open up your Bible and turn there with me. I'm gonna do like a quick walk through Romans one verse four. Where do I get this idea that is for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ? Right. So Romans one verse four says, "Jesus Christ, our Lord." Easy enough. We get that through whom we, that is the apostles, have received grace and apostleship, or the call to the apostles, to the apostleship, to, to what end? To bring about the obedience of faith. So in other words, they received the grace and apostleship to call people to obedience through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now then, what's the purpose? Here's that four, right? That says four. I love my favorite words in the New Testament letters are the conjunctions. It says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So in other words, God had something much bigger in mind than for you and I to live in obedience to Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And through Christ, right, we receive forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, eternal life, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all wonderful reasons, right? That is why Jesus Christ came to the earth. But God's ultimate purpose in sending the Son to the earth to die for sinners is to make the name of Jesus Christ great and to spread that name across the entire globe. God sent his Son to die for sinners for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is glorious because of what he's done through the gospel. Yes, absolutely. But what makes him spectacular is that he is God. The gospel is the means by which the person of Christ and his gloriousness is spread throughout the entire globe. Through the gospel, Jesus reveals himself as Savior, but also he reveals himself as God. And this is the problem that I have I have a lot of problems with, with, but with like 
prosperity gospel or health and wealth in this gospel or gospels that, that try to make much of you and try to tell you that God is for you and try to lift you up and encourage you and God does all those things. But the main point of the gospel is to make much of Jesus Christ first and foremost, and then it's you and I. The gospel of Christ is about Christ. And the, God, and the passage also tells us that not only through the gospel is Jesus revealed as Savior and also God, but Jesus is also the revealer of God the Father. Right? It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God that is referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is similar to the previous point. Jesus does more than just simply show us who the Father is. In fact, based on the original language, the best way to really communicate what this is intending to try to tell us is that Jesus exegetes the Father. And that, again, that's a kind of a big word, but to exegete something or exegesis is just simply the critical explanation or interpretation of a text. So it's in exegesis, you're simply trying to draw out the meaning of a message. It's, it's analyzing a text or a message, no matter the medium, and to try to get at what it's intending to communicate. And this is, again, it's a fancy word, but I assure you that you've done this before. If you've ever received a text message or an email or a letter that you've had to read more than once in order to try to understand what the author is trying to communicate, well, then that's exegesis. Simply put, you're just, it's just careful reading. So Jesus does more than just reveal the Father to us, but, the, but Jesus exegetes him for us. What the law of Moses attempted to do for God's people is exegete God's desire and will for his people. Jesus exegetes the Father better than the law of Moses because only Jesus has ever been at the bosom of the Father. And only he has seen God in the fullest sense and only he can reveal to us in a most accurate way. Jesus better explains to us who the Father is. Jesus better reveals to us what is the Father's plan of redemption for his people. Jesus better dispenses to us the eternal grace of our Heavenly Father. No one or anything can better explain to us the divine author's intent for the world than Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And the son's interpretation of the father is not only intended to be informative, but more so it's intended to be transformative. Wait, so once you know the father through the son, your life just doesn't look the same anymore. If your life doesn't look any different, or if it looks just like the rest of the world, well, you need to ask yourself, do you really know your heavenly father through the son? And one of the ways that your life is transformed by the knowledge of the Father through the Son is that you worship the Son. Ephesians 1 verse 20, speaking about what God has done, it says that God worked, what God had worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Basically, what that passage is saying is that God had made Christ the focal point of all worship. It is the glory of God to make his son the pinnacle of our worship. 
and it is through the Son that God is glorified. So if you want to glorify God, then you glorify the Son. So I ask, do you, do you marvel at the person of Jesus Christ? Do you worship him as your Savior? And not only do you worship him as your Savior, do you worship Jesus Christ just simply because he is the Son of God? When was the last time you got on your knees to pray to the Lord and not ask for anything, but just simply to just worship him? And even in, even in, even in circumstances, even in difficult situations, right, we pray to the Lord, we ask for help, we ask for strength and the grace to continue to move on but because of who Christ Jesus is, that is the Son of God, we worship him in all circumstances because no matter what we go through, no matter how difficult life gets, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is always, always worthy of our praise and our worship. So it's time that we stop worshiping Christ only for what he has done or what he can do for us. We need to worship him because he is God, and He is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Mm-hmm.